Lumos. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Harry Podcast, the show where we analyze and discuss each chapter of the Harry Potter series from a literary perspective. I'm David. And I'm Madeline. And today's episode is called Harry Podcast and the Writing on the Wall. Today, we will be discussing what it means to be a squib at Hogwarts, why the Chamber of Secrets was created in the first place, and how Percy may actually have a point. So, David, my question for you today is, if you were a squib, and then you suddenly got the power to do any type of magic for just one hour, and then your powers would go away, what would you do during that hour? Uh, kind of putting me on the spot here. Um, I could probably come up with something a lot better than this, um, but my first thought was that I would rob banks. (laughs) (laughs) Um, cause you could like cast a disillusionment charm on yourself and then, you know, like Alohomora your way into a bank vault and then just abscond with a whole bunch of money. Um, not Gringotts cause that obviously is much higher security, but just like a regular muggle bank. Hmm. Well, that's a good one to get a bunch of money that kind of sets you up for the future. Um, I was thinking just to make the most of that one hour and I would just apparate everywhere. So I would just apparate basically like some top places around the world, hang out with them like a few minutes each and just like experience that. Um, maybe take some, bring some things back with me as I travel mm-hmm. around and just have a fun time. Maybe do some unauthorized port keying. Definitely, definitely. Well, speaking of squibs. This chapter starts out with Filch freaking out because he thinks that Mrs. Norris is dead um, since he sees her frozen on the wall. And uh, Dumbledore happens to witness this whole scene taking place. So he sort of corrals all the involved people, Harry, Ron, Hermione, Filch, McGonagall, Snape, and Lockhart. And they all go to Lockhart's office for an impromptu meeting. Once there, they all determine that Mrs. Norris is not in fact dead, but is petrified. Um, Snape in particular is skeptical of the trio's supposed lack of involvement and he questions them, but Dumbledore believes that they're not responsible for the attack, um, despite Filch's proclamations to the contrary, and we learn about squibs because of his outburst. So after this, Hermione is trying to find information on the Chamber of Secrets, and she finally asks Binns during History of Magic class to describe the legend to them, which he does reluctantly. According to Binns, Salazar Slytherin was ousted from the school by the other founders, but before he left, he allegedly created the Chamber of Secrets so that his heir would be able to unleash the monster within it and purge the school of unworthy students. Binns is convinced that there is no chamber and is annoyed with himself for even retelling the story. So despite this, the trio goes investigating um, around where they found Mrs. Norris and discover spiders fleeing in a straight line out of the castle, which freaks Ron out because he's scared of spiders. While they're looking, they remember that there had been water on the floor and determined that it must have come from the girl's bathroom nearby. Hermione says it's Moaning Myrtle's bathroom, so nobody will be in there. They talk to Myrtle to try and see if she saw anything strange, but she gives them no useful information. On their way out, they're found by Percy, who tells them off for snooping around and tells them it looks really dodgy for them to be at the scene of the crime. Percy then mentions that Ginny seems really upset by the whole thing and has been crying her eyes out. The next day, they discuss potential heir of Slytherin candidates. They think about Malfoy as the obvious guess, 
To prove their theory, Hermione suggests using Polyjuice Potion to impersonate Malfoy's friends and get him to talk about it, but the potion brewing will require them to steal ingredients and brew it for a month. Harry and Ron seem really not into this plan until Hermione convinces them that it's important for them to do whatever they can to stop the air, even if it means risking expulsion. So the first thing of import that we wanted to cover in this chapter was the whole meeting between all of the professors at the scene and Harry, Ron, and Hermione. And I think we can start by talking about how the teachers interact and what that says about each of their characters, and in particular Lockhart's character. So Lockhart in this scene, first of all, um, he wants to do it in his office, and all of his portraits and pictures on the wall are in various states of undress, and they have curls in their hair, and uh, they're like rushing out of frame because they're like, oh no, I'm not dressed, you know, I have to look nice all the time, which is just a reflection of his vanity, you know, his his obsession with his own image. Um, His portraits also nod along with him when he's telling an outlandish story. So it's more of like, you know, him patting himself on the back kind of in a real visceral way. Um, Lockhart is continually saying like, oh, I could have saved the cat. I totally know the curse and the counter curse. Um, Then when Dumbledore contradicts him and says it wasn't a curse, it was like she was petrified. Lockhart's like, oh, of course. Yeah, I knew that. Yeah. Um, And then when Dumbledore's like, we can save her. We need a mandrake restorative draught. He's like, oh, I can make one of those in my sleep. And it's only then that someone sort of calls him out and Snape is the one who initially says it. He's like, excuse me, I'm the potions master. I'm going to be doing the brewing if anyone needs a potion. Yeah, and it's just crazy how far, I mean, we see in the next chapter how far Lockhart does go to kind of show that he thinks that he knows how to do everything. But I mean, what if somebody actually asked him to prove some of this stuff? Like he couldn't. And he's just kind of so wrapped up in his own lies that I think he does believe them in a lot of ways. Yeah. And it's 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 just crazy. So we see a lot of this in this um, interaction first. And then, you know, after they kind of work that out, um, Dumbledore and Harry sort of have a moment where um, Harry is lying about why they were in the corridor. He's not telling them that he heard the voice, which is of the basilisk. Um, and Dumbledore clearly knows that Harry is lying and he's kind of staring at him intently with his Dumbledore stare and, um, he's kind of being shady about it. So, um, I don't know. Why do you think that Harry is lying? And then also what do you think that Dumbledore is thinking about? Well, so the, the lead up to this moment is that Harry initially is lying to Snape. Snape's asking him questions about what's going on. And, like, why were you in this corridor at this time? And Harry lies because he doesn't want to say, like, oh, you know, I heard a disembodied voice and we were following it. Um, and I think his instincts were, like, pretty good about how that would look. But I, I do think he was wrong to lie to Dumbledore because I think Dumbledore would understand maybe what was going on if he had that information. Um, and we'll get that information in a couple chapters anyway once it comes out that Harry's a parcel tongue. Um, but I think Dumbledore would have an easier time putting two and two together. Okay, Harry is hearing a disembodied voice. Harry is a parcel tongue. Um, so he understands snake language when nobody else does. Maybe this creature is a snake. You know, that probably would help along Dumbledore's own investigation a lot more. Um, and there is this cool thing, as you said, like Dumbledore's piercing gaze. It's described many times in the series, but it's not until book five that we really understand what this probably is, is legitimacy. So Dumbledore is sort of reading Harry's mind in a sense and assessing you know, um, the veracity of his statements 
and not just his statements, but like actually like, are you guilty? Did you do this? Right. And it's clear that he knows Harry didn't do it. Right. And I think that another reason why Harry lies, I mean, not just to not get in trouble, but I think that I do think he really thinks he's crazy at this point. And, you know, Ron kind of talks about how like hearing voices isn't a great thing. And Harry really doesn't know what's going on. Nobody else can hear them. You know, he knows that something crazy is going on in the castle and that maybe they're connected, but he just doesn't have any idea what's happening. And I don't think he wants to admit another weird thing about himself that will possibly get him more unwanted attention. Yeah. Everything seems to happen to him, doesn't it? Yeah. And then the last thing that kind of is funny that goes on in this interaction is that... um, Snape and McGonagall sort of snip at each other, um, ostensibly about punishing Harry, but really it's about their competitiveness of their Quidditch teams. Right. They they both have a Quidditch match against each other coming up next chapter. And so Snape suggests, let's take away Harry's Quidditch privileges until he's willing to be honest with us. And McGonagall is like, no, this has (laughs) nothing to do with Quidditch, Severus, come on. And like, yeah, as you said, ostensibly about punishing Harry or defending Harry's innocence, but... I think also there's an element of, like, they actually care about their Quidditch teams a lot. They do, yeah. They want to win. It's an interesting scene that reveals a lot about these different professors, and it's one of the only times that we see a group of professors interacting with each other, um, especially this early in the series, Mm -hmm. Um, this many of them, and we kind of see how they are with each other and how they're kind of sniffing at each other and what the power structure is like. And all that stuff, even though there's students with them, they're kind of, it's all about them a little bit. So next, we're going to introduce a new concept into the series, the concept of the squib, which is a person born into a wizarding parents, into a wizarding family, who has no magical abilities. And we see that Argus Filch is our first example of a squib character. We had hints about this last chapter with the quick spell letter and everything. And now we have confirmation from Filch himself that he believes he was targeted because he's a squib and that he thinks Harry was the culprit because Harry knows. So first off, um, in in the world of the books and, and in, you know, maybe a larger wizarding society, what does it mean to be a squib? So in my opinion, I think that being a squib is possibly the worst thing that you can be in the whole context of the wizarding and muggle worlds, um, if we're focused on the wizarding world, that's kind of the main world. So if you're a muggle, you're a muggle. You don't know anything else. You're in a muggle family. It's fine. You're in the muggle world. If you're obviously if you're born to a wizarding family and you're a wizard or witch, great. If you are muggle-born, witch or wizard, um, even though there's lots of disadvantages that you have within the wizarding society, you can fit in in a lot of ways to both the muggle society and the wizarding society because mm-hmm. you know the muggle world, you've grown up there, so you know what to do there and how to fit in. But then you can fit in in a lot of ways to the wizarding society because especially as you get older and you have magical abilities and you cultivate them, then you can be fully witch and wizard. So being a squib means you're in a wizarding family and you don't have any magical abilities. And I could just imagine that that would be the worst possible thing because you don't, you're not in the muggle world. You can't really fit into the muggle world in a lot of ways. You have to work hard to do that if that's what you want to do. And you can never change. You can never learn magic. That's what it means. It's not something that if you just work harder, you can do. Um, It's some sort of defect and, you know, genetic thing that comes Mm -hmm. up. 
So I really feel for Filch, but mostly just Squibs in general when we are reading this chapter. Yeah, and and I think I think you have a really good point there. And I wonder whether squibs are um, allegorical or anything for like in in our society about like class or something like that. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, I don't know exactly what the parallel would be, but I think that they are a lower class um, in in a sort of like how you can't you can't you know change. It's something that you can't change about yourself mm-hmm. that. Um, keeps you in a lower class naturally within the wizarding world um and then also prevents you from moving up really in the muggle world because you don't fit in there originally so it's just really a low status person and it takes a lot of you know mental energy and support from different parties i'm assuming in order to really function in society and not go into whatever deep depression or yeah, and we see that it makes Filch really depressed and and bitter because, you know, uh, he wants to be a wizard. He even still at his advanced age is is trying to like learn quick spell and and become a wizard through that way, but isn't able to. And he works at a school for magic, so he's constantly seeing like wizards grow up and and learn their abilities and then leave. And it's something that he'll never be able to do. Um, so I think it really just frustrates him and, and depresses him. And it's why he's so bitter and, and spiteful towards the students is because of that distinction. Yeah. And I wonder, you know, when he was hired for the job, I mean, I'm assuming that, I mean, definitely Dumbledore knew and probably all the professors know that he's a squib. And so I wonder if, you know, Dumbledore was trying to just find a place for him as something that he could do as a caretaker. You don't really need magic um to do that so he was trying to be nice and hire filch i'm assuming but it kind of makes it worse for him because he is constantly around these students that he really hates because they can do more than him as children and and he can't and he feels really badly about that so um it's kind of ironic that he does have this job Something else that this chapter reveals is um, that there is, like, the existence of squibs helps us understand more about the genetic inheritability of wizarding traits. So we know that, like, muggleborns exist, therefore um, it's possible to have wizarding genes passed on through muggle families um, and be, like, carriers of wizarding genes. So the way that I always imagine this would work is that the wizarding gene is recessive. Um, and so you can have muggles who have, like, if we imagine a Punnett square, maybe like big W for muggles and like little W for wizards, um, you know, if both of your parents are, are heterogeneous, um, big W, little W, then they have a one in four chance of producing a wizard child. Mm -hmm. Um, if you have two wizard parents, they're, they're always going to be little W, little W homozygous recessive. So they can only produce wizarding children. That's why squibs are so rare. And we do see very few examples of this is because the squib must be like a mutation right, of one of those right. two into into the dominant gene mm-hmm. or, or a knockout. So um, instead of having the recessive recessive, you have like recessive zero or recessive dominant instead. Um, and so that's why there are so few squibs and there are so many muggleborns. Because, you know, if you say maybe like half of muggle society is carrying this wizard gene, that means a quarter of those parents, when they pair off, would have wizard kids. Yeah, that's interesting. I never really thought about it that way. But 
that makes sense why there's so many more Muggleborns than Squibs and how it must be a really rare mutation. I wonder, you know, what the actual um, percentages are in Wizarding Society of Squibs, but it seems like it's pretty low. It's fun to wonder about stuff like this. And also, I you know, I want to remind our listeners that when we apply like biology and biological principles to the wizarding world, we're, we're doing it sometimes to just like be clever and think about like, okay, how would this work in the real world? But also don't take it like super seriously. You know, no, this isn't something that JK Rowling spent years and years thinking about when she designed all this stuff. Um, we're just sort of like post hoc applying our principles to it and saying like, this kind of works, you know? Yeah. And it's interesting to think about that kind of stuff and how we could make it work sort of retroactively. Mm -hmm. so going back to filch in this chapter he is accusing harry of committing this crime against mrs norris um because he knows that harry saw his quick spell papers and things in the last chapter and knows that he is a squib or at least what that vaguely means so he makes an assumption that harry did this in retaliation since this is the first of these crimes there's no evidence that it doesn't have to do with him specifically um and it's interesting because this is the first time that harry is falsely accused of something that he didn't do um based on really vague evidence but it happens a lot um in the series specifically to harry and you know it's kind of like our society, you know, the whole school seems to turn on Harry just based upon a rumor and not really based on facts. And it's just kind of this gossip that is um, turning against, you know, a celebrity, basically, or an authority figure. Mm-hmm. You know, it's easy to target Harry because he is someone that everybody knows anyway. And you can infer that he might do things to you know, either hurt others or draw attention to himself or something. Yeah. And we're all guilty of this. You know, everybody on social media, there's always some person that everyone's going after, whether it's deserved or not. And uh, we we do tend to ignore um, the, the preponderance of evidence in favor of sort of more like rumor mongering and stuff like that. And I think this is a nice time to reflect on maybe we should do that a little bit less. Because we can see how harmful it is to Harry when the whole school turns against him in this book and in other books. So as we mentioned in the summary briefly, Hermione breaks down and asks Professor Binns in the middle of History of Magic to tell them about the legend of the Chamber of Secrets. um, Because everyone's thinking about it, and especially Hermione is thinking about it. Um, because of the idea that she may be targeted as a Muggleborn, which we'll talk more about later. But, um... So when she asks um, Professor Binns, he reluctantly does tell them the, the story. So so we then get the information that is kind of the crux of, of the story, which is what the Chamber of Secrets is, that there's a monster, and kind of the whole mystery of who is the heir of Slytherin. So we know kind of the basic legend, but will you give us a summary a little bit of what the legend is and what it might mean? Sure. Okay, so... Um... Binns describes that when the school was founded, there were four founders. We already know this. Each of them lent their names to their houses. So there was Godric Gryffindor, Helga Hufflepuff, Rowena Ravenclaw, and Salazar Slytherin. Um, The legend is that Slytherin and Gryffindor had a falling out because Slytherin's opinion was that they shouldn't allow muggle-born wizards into the school because they were untrustworthy. Um, Wizard persecution by muggles was very high at that period in history, and I'll get into that in a second. Um, And... They couldn't agree, Slytherin eventually left the school because of that disagreement. The legend is that before he left, 
Um, he created a secret hidden chamber, which was home to some sort of mythical beast or monster. Um, and that when his heir returned to the school, the heir could unleash that monster and purge the school of all unworthy, quote unquote, wizards. Um, and so that's the legend. And, and um, I want to get into briefly sort of the history of each of the founders and maybe why Slytherin felt that way. And I have a theory about why he might have felt that way. Okay, so your theory is based on actually something that we had in the first book, which was the Sorting Hat song that we hear about. And in the Sorting Hat song, there's some references based on each of the founders and maybe where they may come from. Correct. So uh, it's actually in Goblet of Fire, but the Sorting Hat song in Goblet of Fire is the first one that Harry hears since the first book. Um, and so it, it sticks in our heads as like one of the only Sorting Hat songs we know. Um, it describes the birthplaces of the four founders. Um, and it says, Bold Gryffindor from Wildmoor, Fair Ravenclaw from Glen, Sweet Hufflepuff from Valley Broad, Shrewd Slytherin from Fen. And we know the birthplaces of Gryffindor and Ravenclaw. They were born in Godric's Hollow and somewhere in Scotland, respectively. And Godric's Hollow is in England. Uh, Hufflepuff, we can infer from Valley Broad, was born in Wales. And Slytherin from Fen, we can infer, was born in Ireland. So the four founders sort of represent the four nation states of what became the United Kingdom. And in yeah, in that sense, they they sort of are personified representations of those four nation states. Um, and so we've got Gryffindor for England, we've got Hufflepuff for Wales, we've got Ravenclaw for Scotland, Slytherin for Ireland. There is historical mythos around St. Patrick, who is the patron saint of Ireland, who is famous for driving the snakes out of the country. Mm -hmm. And um, Slytherin himself takes a lot of iconography from snakes. We might be able to infer that snakes actually refers to witches, this idea of medieval witches, practicers of magic. And from that, we might be able to infer that there was a lot of muggle persecution of wizards in that time, in Slytherin's time. It might actually even be why they wanted to create Hogwarts at that time, because wizards were being persecuted so much by muggles. We need a safe place for muggle for wizards to learn to study magic. And so Slytherin comes to the school, and he's Irish, and he's, his family, maybe a lot of his friends, have been persecuted by muggles. And he's feeling very anti-muggle at the time. And then there's this whole issue of muggle-born wizards. Well, how do we integrate them into our society? And Slytherin takes the very hardline stance that we can't trust them. They've been indoctrinated to believe that wizards are evil since the beginning of their lives, and we can't trust them with our secrets, we can't trust them with our knowledge, because they're going to use it to destroy us. And so eventually this paranoia, and I think justifiably so, you know, because he's seen so much persecution, he's basically saying never again, um, this paranoia in him increases to the point where he can't tolerate having them at the school anymore, and that's what causes their falling out. Um, I also think it's really interesting that, um, you know, the, again, correlations and references to St. Patrick's mythos. Slytherin's iconography is that of snakes. Mm -hmm. He is a parcel tongue. He can speak to snakes. His family presumably can because we see that parcel tongue as a gift is genetic. Um, and also he chooses for his monster an enormous snake, the basilisk. Right. And so it's all these things that sort of point us to... Um, you know, maybe allegories or references to St. Patrick and, and the idea of, like, persecution of wizards in Ireland. And it's interesting in general just to think about 
even, you know, the parts of the United Kingdom and what they represent, you know, Ireland is, you know, historically cut off in a lot of ways from the UK and then, you know, Northern Ireland and the wars and all that. Mm -hmm. So just in general, even separate from the myth, um, it's interesting to think of Slytherin as, you know, representing Ireland and it kind of puts a new spin on at least the origins of Slytherin House and all of that. And maybe, you know, at the beginning, it makes sense um, mm-hmm. why they, you know, were considered evil and then why they are the way they are. And it kind of has developed into something different, maybe. Yeah. And it's interesting also to note that the the four houses, although the the founders come from different countries, it's not true anymore that that's the case. Right. Like the Malfoy family, you know, they're a very old English wizard family and they're all Slytherins. Um, Gryffindors might come from Scotland, like McGonagall. Um, Hufflepuffs come from all over. Seamus Finnegan's Irish and he's in Gryffindor. So it's clearly that there aren't these like factional distinctions among regions. Mm -hmm. It's more that they're sort of like representative of those regions. And I think what's really cool for me with this theory is like the idea of Hogwarts as a unified school of these four nations that were not under the same banner at the time. Um, it's sort of like almost a school United Kingdom. It's like, okay, we've got these four countries and they're all going to be at this one school. And it's like the UK of schools, mm-hmm. essentially. And then and then Ireland leaves, sort of, except that they still have Ireland in the school. It's just that the leader left. Right. You know? So it's interesting. It, it, it sort of has some parallels to, like, Muggle history in a sense. But I, I don't know. I think that's a, it's a pretty good theory and, and I really like how it applies to... Um, this book and and specifically what we learn in this chapter. Right. And another thing that's interesting, so going back to what the heir of Slytherin actually is and this sort of snake theme is that the only thing that you actually need, we find out, to open the chamber at all and to get in there is to be able to speak parcel tongue. Um, And Slytherin assumes, I guess, that it's only going to be his heir that, Mm-hmm. knows how to speak parcel tongue and that nobody else does and that's not really explained or clear you know you would think that he would want to be sure about that and want to be clear about that um before he kind of set that up as his theory of how to open it um but i don't know it, it could be entirely genetic it could be that there is this very specific line of quote-unquote sneaks in you know this wizard society Society, yeah yeah i think that's the best explanation it's also probably true that like if you're setting up a hidden chamber at hogwarts it has to be able to be accessed by some people that you want it to be accessed by but so it has to have like a really high gate of entry not just anybody can find it and open it Mm -hmm. but it has to be accessible in some way right and i guess slytherin's idea was like the only thing that that I have that's really intrinsic to me in my bloodline is parcel tongue. Yeah. Or maybe he would just assume in general that if you could speak parcel tongue, you would be on the moral side of Slytherin. Yeah. Maybe it's an esoteric, like anyone who's a parcel mouth mm-hmm. is an heir of Slytherin in a sense, not literally like from his bloodline, but maybe just like of his ilk. Right. Or something like that. Or they um, would hate Muggle Warrens, you know, inherently somehow. Right. I think that's a stretch. But but yeah, I think his idea was like, this is something that's special about my bloodline. I think the implication is that parcel tongue is genetic, but um, certainly there have been other parcel tongues in history. Mm-hmm. We just don't know of them. But I'm sure there have been other families besides just the Slytherin family. 
And the last thing that we want to talk about with this whole section is like getting to this legend of the Chamber of Secrets. Binns describes the whole thing as ludicrous, but there's there's really two big things that are wrong with this if you're the reader. The first of which is that we know the chamber was opened 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. I don't think we know that yet, but we eventually learn that. Right. Um, and Binns was clearly around back then because he's a ghost and he's been teaching at Hogwarts for hundreds of years. Right. So did he just like ignore everything that was happening back then or just like not paying attention or does he not care because it's like quote unquote modern history so it's not real? I think he's totally in his own world and basically is not even aware of what has happened since he's died, kind of. Maybe. Honestly, yeah. I don't know. But that is a good point. Um, and that he's kind of ignoring it. But he does, um, you know, he does know the legend. He does know what it is, at least. And he kind of dismisses it as rubbish. I mean, I wonder also, like, does he does he actually know more than he's saying? And he's just trying to not have the kids freak out about it. Yeah. Because he's it- reluctant to talk about it in the first place. And once Hermione makes him, he's just trying to brush it off as like, this is a story that you shouldn't worry about. I think to lend more credence to that idea that he wasn't paying attention, the official story that like would have been written in any history texts that were written at the time is that Rubeus Haggard was the heir of Slytherin and Aragog was the monster and that Tom Riddle was the person who was able to uncover that truth and then stop him. So, right. so it, we'll get to all that, but... Right, but like... You know, if if he were like paying attention, and if he had like understood the the goings on at the time, he he probably would have mentioned that. Right. Like, that's hey, true. Hey, we we caught the person. It happened before. We caught the person, and they're. It's not it's, a thing anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but there's another thing, which is sort of inherent to like when you're the reader of a book like this. Um, the the name of the book is Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Uh, the artwork on the cover is like Harry holding on to Fox the Phoenix and there's like clearly like snakes and there's the Chamber of Secrets there. And it's it's obvious to a reader reading this book that what Binz is saying isn't made up right. legend. It is fact right. and that there will be a Chamber of Secrets. Harry will go into it um, and there will be some sort of confrontation or conflict. So we all know that just from reading this chapter, like, you know, OK, this is what the book's going to be about now. Mm-hmm. Um, this isn't just like some legend. This is real. Right. And Harry, Ron, and Hermione seem to sort of understand that too, even though they don't have the benefit of being the reader of the book. They sort of understand like, okay, this is, he says it's a legend, but this is probably true. And we have to assume that it's real mm-hmm. because like there's writing on the wall and Mrs. Norris was attacked. And then, um, yeah. And then events later will, will sort of confirm for us that that is true. I also think that, um, the fact that they what they've gone through in the Sorcerer's Stone book, you know, they know that there's, like, secrets within Hogwarts. I mean, they were mm-hmm. basically already kind of in a chamber of secrets, like, when they're going through all the stuff to get to the stone. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that, that was a secret entrance, a secret dungeon in Hogwarts, which is very similar, actually, to what happens here, even though the context is different. So they have already know that there are things within Hogwarts that other people haven't seen or don't know. So I think that they are more apt to assume that those kinds of things will be true. And that kind of sets them up for the rest of the series in knowing that, you know, whatever crazy thing that nobody else believes, they're going to believe. Yeah. So then as we come towards the end of the chapter, we have a scene of them interrogating Myrtle in the bathroom and she doesn't really give them anything, but then Percy shows up. And he's really upset that they're there. 
Um, so why was he upset? Well, so he's upset for a few reasons. I One of them, I think he is genuinely concerned for them because um, he thinks that it's stupid for them to be there and they could get in huge trouble since they have already been basically interrogated by being there. And, and they've essentially returned to the scene of the crime when everyone else is at dinner. Exactly. So it looks really bad for them. Um, he's also very concerned for his reputation because mm-hmm. he's the type of person that, you know, anyone associated with him, um, whatever they do reflects badly on him is how he feels. And he's very concerned with his career and moving up in the world and all that stuff. And he's about to, you know, leave Hogwarts and that stuff. But he also... I think genuinely cares about Ginny. And he again mentions Ginny being really upset, hysterical, crying, and that she's just been completely distraught since this attack. And so we know why that's happening. We know that she orchestrated the attack under Riddle's influence Mm -hmm. and that she's terrified about it. Um, But I think that, you know, he does have a point that something is going on and he knows something's going on and he doesn't know what it is but i don't think that he honestly believes that they have nothing to do with it yeah for sure um and and jenny will point out like she percy's reason for for thinking that she's upset is because she thinks they're gonna get thrown out for Mm -hmm, doing it mm -hmm. because she believes that or that she loves cats and she's really upset that a cat was attacked yeah. But either way, it, like there are plausible explanations for Jenny's behavior, it seems. Right. From Percy's perspective. I do want to throw out one more idea to our audience before we leave this chapter, which is I would ask that you think about why Mrs. Norris was attacked specifically. Yes. So knowing what we know, having read the book about Ginny um, and Riddle, it's interesting to think about why she was targeted. You know, what was she targeted because Filch and Harry had a confrontation and Ginny is trying to kind of get back at Filch because she likes Harry? Or is Was it, she targeted at all? Was it a mistake? Was it a totally a mistake? Was she trying to target, you know, someone that wasn't a person first? Was she trying to kind of deter um, the snake from a person? Was she trying to have have some control for the first real attack i mean it's really hard to tell um what kind of control or thought process that she has during this but we can think about it in that way thank you all for listening to harry podcast and the writing on the wall we hope you've enjoyed our discussion of this chapter If you have thoughts or questions about anything we've discussed today, especially the existence of squibs or the legend of the Chamber of Secrets, please email us at contact at theharrypodcast.com. You can find out more about the show and listen to any of our episodes at www.theharrypodcast.com or on Apple Podcast. Stay tuned for next time when we fly through Chapter 10, The Rogue Bludger. I'm Madeline. And I'm David. And we'll see you next time on The Harry Podcast. Knox.